Job chapter 6, look at verse 14. Job chapter 6. Why don't you stand with me? We'll just read one verse. Job chapter 6, verse 14. Just one verse. Stand and we'll read it together. All right. This is Job talking. Let's listen to him. Ready? To him that is afflicted, pity should be showed from his friend, but he forsaketh the fear of the Almighty. Wow. Father, we just bow one more time before we get into the message and ask that you would teach us tonight. Convict us. Forgive us, Lord. We're too quick to jump into every situation. We, we think we know what people are going through. We think we know how to handle problems. And Lord, problems we don't even know our own problems, much less other people's. So if we would have pity, if we knew how to have compassion, it would sure make a difference in Christianity. Please bless as we learn from Job. Lord, um, how, to, how to help when somebody's in, in deep affliction. In Jesus' name, amen. Be surprised how practical the book of Job is because Job's friends should have done a whole lot different than they ended up doing. Now, we're going we're gonna to see some things that, that reflect on the New Testament on and on God here, but he takes time to let Job and his friends go at each other. And iron sharpens iron. Even wrong opinions and wrong things can actually help you see your own theology, your own view of God from a different light and help you know whether you're actually right or maybe they're right. So, Job chapter 4, uh, we're not going to just, 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 um, it should be Job 6, sorry. Uh, just ignore that Job chapter 4. Job has just heard some very hurtful accusations from Job chapter 4 and chapter 5. Some cutting criticisms. Um, and, um, uh, from he's heard it from one of his best friends, Eliphaz. He's got three of his best friends there. These are not just anybody just run to the mill that just came by because they heard about Job. No, these were very dear friends of Job. And Eliphaz made some very hurtful accusations. And he accused him of having secret sins in his life. Now, you know, that might be true. You know, there's not one of us who doesn't... Boy, we, we, we battle any kind of temptation. It doesn't matter. But people just say, well, what's happening to you is because of something that, that is deep in your life that you don't even know about. Well, be careful, be careful. Because um, uh, that accusation really hurt Job because was it Job's secret sins that were causing that problem in his life? It was not. And he struggled. He said, if I only knew what was the problem. He also accused him of having, of his children actually deserving to perish in the attack by the Sabaeans in chapter 1. He says, your children probably deserve that. Can you imagine the hurt that that would mean to somebody about losing their children? These were grown children also, but they still, the, the very fact that somebody would say, well, you know, I, I kind of believe they deserved it. Can you imagine that? This came from a friend, and you have no idea the words that you say, how they will hurt the hearer. He also said that your physical health is really reflecting your spiritual condition. Danger. That all three of those can be true. You know, your physical health is affected by your spiritual condition. Didn't you know that? But wow, when somebody can step, can be outside and can look in and go, I think all of these things. 
it could absolutely destroy. Was Job already hurting, yes or no? Believe me, he was really hurting after chapter 4 and chapter 5. So Job tries to respond, and that's what chapter 6 is. But before we get to that, before we get into chapter 6, I'm going to talk about criticism just for a moment. Actually, I did a whole long study on it, and I said, I'm just going to take a bit of it and show it to you tonight, because there is a need for corrective criticism, for a corrective spirit. We call it constructive criticism. What does that mean? When somebody, when if, if, if you're dr- learning to drive, like Dean is going to do, and somebody's driving with you, hopefully not Yuming or Barry or any of these other guys who have been doing it for so long, you need probably somebody fresh in the car with you. But anyway, and if you're sort of, you know, floating from side to side, and they say, you need to stay in the middle of the road, you can't say, well, that's very offensive to say to me right now. You shouldn't say such things to me. No, you need to take criticism. You need to listen to people's criticisms. Because sometimes they're right. It is wrong for us to shut down communication when somebody is saying something corrective. Not just critical, be careful, because you don't need to hear every criticism. But when somebody's correcting you, you ought to listen to it. Because sometimes they're right. Often they are of God. I really believe that not only did the devil send these three friends, but God wanted those three friends there And he allowed and he coordinated their every attack. And God, by doing and allowing the devil to to throw this at Job, was getting glory out of it because Job did stay firm. Job never blamed God. Job never wrongfully, never cursed God, never sinned with his mouth. And so through it, God says, you know, I'm going to show the devil that there are some who serve me even when they're hurting Often the people who come into your life and hurt you with words are actually from God. That's what a preacher is supposed to do. Paul says, I might become your enemy because I tell you the truth. Just because I may say something that hurts you, you need to thank God because you probably, not even, that the person who said it, not even knowing, that probably is something that would help you down the road. You know, it does us good to humble us, even when somebody hurts us. And it is very important to be correctable. You know what that means? Flexible, yielding. We're, we're, we're prone to be Western. Most everybody in this room tonight is Western. There are some that are from the Philippines and others that I know have such a teachable spirit. But the rest of us, we're like bricks. You're just not going to tell me something to do. I've made up my mind. That is very wrong. And very dangerous, the Western world, yeah, we, we went to the moon. We do all these great things. We build nuclear power stations. We do these things by the, by the seat of our pants. Be careful, because when it comes to spiritual things, has the West gotten closer to God or farther? So I think we've gone the wrong direction. It's important to be correct, correctable. Go to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 23. 623. <clears throat> now, what age group was Proverbs written for? Was it for 50-somethings? Was it for, written for six-year-olds? No, it was actually written for young men. 20-somethings. Kind of unique. Now, it applies to all age groups, but I want you to see 
Proverbs chapter 6, and what did I say? Verse 23. For the commandment is like a what? It's a lamp. The law, that's light. Well, is this the commandment, the law, do they always rub us the right way? No, they don't. Look what the rest of it says. And reproofs of instruction are a way of life. So for the young man to learn to be correctable is paramount. Not that the young man constantly goes, oh, I'm sorry, oh, I was so wrong. But where they're, they're just a wimp. But there is something where you say, I understand, I appreciate the help. Go to chapter 10 and verse 17, Proverbs 10, 17. He is in the way of life that keepeth instruction, that listens to and obeys instruction. You're working on an assembly line, supervisor comes in, says how this is how you're supposed to do it, and you go, yes, and you do it. That's, that's how you survive. Um, uh, it's a way of life to keep instruction, but he that refuses reproof, so they'll start doing it wrong, they start assembling the widgets and what's it's together wrongly, and it... Uh, and the supervisor comes in and reproves them, says, you're not doing it right. This is how you do it. Look what it says. It says, if you refuse it, you're the fault. You're in error. Chapter 15, verse 5, Proverbs 15, 5. A fool despises his father's what? 15, 5. Talk to me. Instruction, but he that regardeth reproof. Now, the instruction is not always pleasant. That's why it compared with reproof. When you're being told you're doing wrong. A fool despises his father's instruction, but he that regardeth reproof. That person's prudent. That person's um, careful and, and, and uh, uh, into detail. Chapter 15 and verse 31. Still in chapter 15, verse 31. The ear that heareth the reproof of life abideth among the wise, lives among the wise. He that refuses instruction actually despises his own what? You know, we live in a generation, it's probably the last several generations, where people hate themselves. You know why they hate themselves? Because they set themselves up at some point in their life and they said, I'm not listening to anybody else. And so they only listen to themselves. And they have to admit they failed themselves. And so they really despise their own soul. But he that heareth reproof getteth understanding. Actually learns something. So, being corrected is a bad thing or a good thing? It is a good thing. 2 Timothy 4.2 tells the preacher, tells the man behind the pulpit, tells the Christian sometimes on the street corner, says, preach the word. Be instant, in season, when people like it, and out of season, when they don't like it. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all, all long suffering. Because if somebody will listen, if somebody will go, he's right. That's what the Bible says. It saves their soul and it saves the nation. Now let me talk about the sin of a critical spirit. Because there is a corrective spirit and there's a critical spirit. A critic like Eliphaz is someone who sets himself up as a judge of others. Not with the intention of helping them but of finding faults. What were the Pharisees like when Jesus spoke? What did they hear? Or what were they listening for when they, when they were in the presence of Jesus? What was it that the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers, what were they truly listening for? A flaw, a hiccup, 
something that they could go, ha ha, ha ha, we caught him. They didn't hear a word he said because they were listening, trying to find fault. We have critics all in, in, in all society. Anybody heard of food critics? Can you imagine being a chef and a, and a newspaper sending a food critic to your restaurant? And they sit down, and what are they looking for? They're not looking for a good meal. They're going to find everything wrong with that food. Amen? That's a food critic. Newspaper reporters. Their job is to be critical of the decisions and actions of leaders. How about, how about a car tester? They got a new design on a car that comes out, and they, that you want a tester that wants to find all the flaws in that car before they make it mass production and start selling it to people who go driving on the major highways. A critic only lives to see and to find faults. A critical spirit is a negative attitude of the heart that seeks to condemn, tear down, and destroy with their words. In contrast, a a constructive spirit. When they may have to be critical, they use words that are meant to build up, to correct, to help. Do you easily criticize and pass judgment on others? We're, like I said last week or the week before, we're often seeing ourselves as Job when God wants us to see ourselves as Eliphaz. And they were quick and capable of saying judgment and coming to judgment on other people when we haven't even heard their side of the story. Is it difficult for you to see the positive in a person or in a situation because of a negative speck? Now, I don't know what you're like, but you, you, uh, you crack open an egg and you drop it in and you get ready to make scrambled eggs, but there's a tiny, tiny bit of shell in there. How do you react? Oh, you get over and you go get a spoon and you dig the thing out. It's the tiniest bit of a shell, but you got to get it out of it. All right. So that works for eggs, but it's very bad on people. Because if you're constantly seeing the bit of speck in everybody, you're never going to have friends. You're never going to be a blessing. You're going to be a critic. There's a sin in having a critical spirit. Do you feel compelled to give your point of view <laughs> at everything? First Timothy chapter 5, verse 13 says, With all they, these unmarried women and these widows, learn to be idle, wandering about house to house, and not only idle, but they are tattlers also and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. What do you think those things are that those women were saying? Critical things. Judgmental things, things that tear down other people. Hmm. You know what some people are very good at? Judging themselves, condemning themselves. It's not right. It's not right. A critical spirit will either destroy someone else or destroy you, if not both. Reality check. God's the final judge. If you ever do see a problem in somebody before you ever speak, what would be the first thing you should do? Judge yourself. Well, praise good, but judge yourself. Judge yourself. Matthew 7 says, judge not that you be not judged. That's the only part of the verse people quote. <laughs> but that doesn't say that you shouldn't judge. It just says this. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged too. So you better make sure that it's not in your life before you start seeing the speck in somebody else's. 
Listen to all the facts before you make up your mind. Eliphaz never listened to one thing Job said in chapter 3. He didn't hear, he didn't even know what happened in Job's life. He just heard, it was all hearsay. And so when he heard him speak, he says, I can't help but speak. And he just tore him to shreds. James 4 says, speak evil, speak not evil one of another. That's a good commandment, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his brother is actually speaking evil of the law and judges the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but now you become a judge. And is that what you are? No way. Be very careful how you think you can speak to others. None of us should ever hold on to any kind of critical spirit. Can you just say amen to that? You've got to be able to look and say, Lord, sometimes I see myself as Job. Sometimes I see myself as, as going through Job's troubles and, and wanting to have the, the patience of Job. But when we look at this, we need to say, am I like Eliphaz? Now, let's talk about how Job feels. You see, Job now tries to respond, and he tries to share how he feels. Look at uh, Job chapter 7 and verse 3. I, I, I haven't said this before, but I'm quite convinced. Job chapter 7, verse 3, Job says this, So am I made to possess, so am I made, he's actually making a statement, so am I made to possess months of vanity and wearisome nights are appointed to me. How long has his trouble been going on now? Not just a week, not just days, but months. How do you think he feels? Is he getting any better? Has things turned around? Has his wife snuggled up to him and says, I love you, sweetheart, with all my heart? He is still alone. He is hurting like none of us have ever experienced. So let's listen to how he feels. Let me just read verses 1 to 13, and then we'll go through it. Number 1, verse 1. But Job answered now, and he says back to Eliphaz and to the other two guys with him, Oh, that my grief were thoroughly weighed. I'm in chapter 6, Job chapter 6, verse 2. Oh, that my grief were thoroughly weighed, and my calamity laid in the balances together. For now it would be heavier than the sand of the sea, therefore my words are swallowed up. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me, the poison whereof drinketh up my spirit. The terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. Doth the wild ass bray when he hath grass? Or loweth the ox over his fodder? Can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? The things that my soul refused to touch are now as my sorrowful meat. Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would grant me the thing that I long for, even that it would please God to destroy me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Then should I yet have comfort. Yea, I would harden myself in sorrow. Let him not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should hope? And what is mine end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength the strength of stones? Is my flesh of brass? Is not my help in me? And is wisdom driven quite from me? So he says several things here. The first one he says, I I have immeasurable grief. He says, why don't you try and find out just heavy my grief is. Now, I know sand is fun. 
But have you ever tried to pick up wet sand? The sand that's right by the sea. You go and you, you dig up a, um, a, a shovel full of, of dry sand. It's not so heavy. You go to pick it up with water, and it weighs a ton. And he says, like the sand of the seashore, right on the shore, soaking. You take all of that sand and you pile it up into a weighing scale. That's only the beginning of how I feel under this weight. He goes on there at the end of verse 3. He says, it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words are swallowed up. He says, I'm so overwhelmed, I have no words. You know, it's kind of funny. You go go to the doctor, and the doctor says, how do you feel? And you go, I don't know, you tell me. <laughs> and he's like, I, I don't know, I, I just don't feel right. He doesn't know how to express. He can't say and can't point to a to a thing that's, that's wrong in him. He can't point to where his pain is coming from. He says, it's just all over. I have no words. They're swallowed up in my grief. You know, any anybody who ever sits down with somebody... The last thing to say is, is tell me how you feel. It's like, they usually don't know. He goes on, he says, and this is very instructive. Look at verse 4. The arrows of the Almighty are within me. What he's describing is like an animal that's been hunted. He says, I was just going along my way, and all of a sudden, God hits me. And he's taking me down, and I'm on the... I'm, 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 I, I have been hit with his arrows. I am sitting here and dying. And yet I'm not dead. I feel like a hunted animal. Look at chapter 9 and verse 17. Job chapter 9 and verse 17. For he, God, breaketh me with a tempest, with a, with a storm. And multiplieth my wounds without reason, without cause. I don't know why he's doing it, but he still keeps coming at me. David picked this up in Psalm 109. He says, I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. It's one thing to to have your hand or your flesh wounded. It's another thing thing to have your heart wounded. Harder, for some reason, for the heart to heal. Now, David, sorry, Job is not aware that Satan has done all this to him. But he says, God got me. I'm just, it's like, like, a, like a hunter just let off all his arrows at me. And it's like poison in me. It's killing me. So he describes, he says, I'm mourning like a wounded animal. And for good reason. They've affected me the same way that hunger affects a wild ass, a wild donkey. A wild donkey has got plenty of grass, doesn't bray, doesn't hee-haw, hee-haw. But when that donkey is no food, he lets it be known. The ox will low and say, I'm starving, until it has its own food. When you season the salt, when you season with salt an egg or the white of an egg or something that has no flavor, it affects it. He says, this event has changed my life. It has affected me. I am braying. I am lowing. I am hurting because of what God has done. I'm reduced 
to eating ashes and filth. Verse 7, he says, The things that my soul used to refuse to touch are now my sorrowful meats. Again, Psalm 102, David says, Hide not thy face from me in the day when I'm in trouble. Incline thine ear unto me in the day when I call thee. Answer me speedily, for my days are consumed like smoke. My bones are burned as a hearth. My heart is smitten, withered like grass, and I forget to eat my bread. Ever been to where you just don't want to eat? You just don't want to eat. Just you can't eat because you're just so much sorrow. Probably the months before, probably if you met Job going down the street, children in tow, wife there, he probably was a hearty, healthy, stout, wonderfully strong man, older man there, no problems at all. He probably is now skin and bones. You can see his ribs. He can't find the strength to eat. And what he does eat, is ash and filth and what he never would have touched before. Verse, verse 11 picks up. It says, I have no strength or hope to get through this or even to get better. Look in verse 11. What is my strength that I should hope? What is mine end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength the strength of stones and rocks? Is my flesh of brass? Question, is not my help in me? You know what the answer is? No. And is wisdom driven quite far from me? Yes. You know what he's saying? I'm not a like a mighty rock. I'm not like a shield of brass. I'm not superhuman. There's no help in me. I have no idea what to do. He then says, oh, that God would so that I would. Look at verse 8. Go back to verse 8. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would grant me the thing that I long for. What is it, Job? Even that he that it would please God to destroy me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Then should I have comfort. Why? Why would Job believe that by dying he would have comfort? You might want to take a guess. It's not really that profound, but it is important to understand. What are you going to say, somebody? Because the pain stops then. He doesn't see the pain stop until he dies. He can't conceive that it would ever end. He says, where's my hope? I have no hope that this is ever going to get better. Why would God allow a man to go through that? So that in the 21st century, a church up in Cork, Ireland would read it and go, I've been there. Know how he feels. Boy, do I, I'm, I'm glad for a greater hope, because I'll talk about that in a second. If he would just finish destroying me, then I could find contentment, I would find comfort, I would find rest, because the pain would stop. If he would just allow me to die, then I'd be able to handle my sorrow. He says this, verse 10, then I would have comfort, yeah, I would harden myself in sorrow. What does, horror, what does sorrow do? It breaks you, destroys you, it crumbles you. But when you die, you can finally firm up and resist the sorrow it's done for, as far as he's concerned. <clears throat> now, he says something very unusual. We're going to finish here. Verse 10, the end of it. Then should I have comfort, yea, I would harden myself in sorrow. Let him not spare, let him not hold back. For I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. He's saying, you know what, God, you owed this to me. 
I've never concealed one truth out of your Bible. I've never been ashamed or embarrassed of one thing in, in your words. Now, he didn't have a whole Bible. As a matter of fact, he only had bits and pieces. But what he knew of God and what he heard from God, he said, I never was ashamed of. I never hid it and said, well, I don't want to talk about hell. I don't want to upset anybody. I don't want to talk about holiness. I don't want to talk against uh, homosexuality. I have never hidden anything that God has ever said. I've always believed it. I've always preached it. I've always said it. I've always trusted it. God, you owe this to me to kill me. I want you to understand, Job was not on his own. He had enough of the word of God to know, I believe the Bible. Therefore, God, I'm believing that you owe this to me. That's tough. I want to go to Deuteronomy. Hold your place here. Actually, you can finish here, uh, I think. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want to show you something. Before the Bible was ever written, you know what God had expected of his people? They passed a, around verbal recollections of what God said. And God didn't say, well, you know, you don't need to know it. Only for those, only for the Levites who could make copies of the, of the scrolls. No, look at what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 10. I'm sorry, verse, verse 6. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 6. And these words which I command thee this day shall be where? In your phone, right? It's not bad to have it in your phone. It's not bad to have it in a book. But where do the words of God belong? In your heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently. He's speaking to the entire million and a half people. He says, ladies and gentlemen, you may not have a copy of the Bible, but you better get the Bible. You better get my words and teach them to your diligently unto thy children. Talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand. They shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Put them everywhere in your house. Write them even upon the doorposts of thy house and on thy gates. Put scripture everywhere. You may not have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. You may not have that, but put enough around your house where they know, thus saith the Lord. Job had had a great respect for the word of God, even though he didn't have a Bible. You've got a Bible. And we have less respect for it. And that's a shame. Have you ever just listened to how someone else feels? I'm going to be honest with you. It's a blessing to me to go to somebody and say, how you doing? I love that. I like knowing how they feel. But I find that most people really don't care when they ask, how you doing? Is that true? Okay. All right. And I understand why. We don't have a lot of time <laughs> because they'll tell you how they're doing. But wouldn't it really make us more close if we actually did care enough to say, how are you doing? And listen to them without judging, without criticizing. Just minister by listening. Couldn't Eliphaz have made that difference in Job's life just by listening? Some New Testament truths that are that are snuck in here. All right, you ready? Job knew grief like was unmeasurable, but he didn't know Jesus would know more. 
Go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53. As I began this study months ago, I was stunned. I had never seen that Job was a, a, a type, a shadow, a foreshadowing, an example of Christ in the New Testament. Isaiah 53 records these words. Isaiah 53 in verse 3. He, the Messiah, is despised and rejected of men. Were his friends coming to comfort him or to find fault with him? They came to find fault with him. Same was true with Jesus. He is despised and rejected of men, and he was a man of sorrows. And I like how it says, and acquainted with grief, like they were the best of friends. We hid as it were our faces from Jesus. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Not once did Eliphaz, Zophar, or Bildad ever said, this is our friend and we grieve with him. Not once did they ever stop and try to minister to him. Look at verse 4. Surely he hath borne. What's that word? B-O-R-N-E mean? Carried. Took on the weight of. Surely he hath taken on the weight of our what? Wow, he didn't just come to take on our sins, he took on our griefs, and he's carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. What was Job? Smitten of God. Struck by the arrows of God. But Jesus would be hurt worse. Go down to verse 7. Yes, verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. What was the difference between Jesus and Job? Job tried to respond. Job tried to justify himself. Job tried to say, God, why? Jesus never did that, did he? One time at the end, Jesus cries out, why hast thou forsaken me? Just to give us a glimpse on the fact he was uh, forsaken. Hebrews 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Imagine the high priest of Jesus' day and of the days before that. The high priest lived in a palace. The high priest would walk on, on, on in certain areas where the streets were clean. He would not allow people to come up to him and just hug him, especially if they were sinners, especially if they were lepers. He, they, the, the high priest of the day was nearly untouchable. He didn't know what it felt like to be poor. He didn't know the high priest throughout the Bible history didn't know what it felt like to have no food and no money. And yet the Bible says this, we don't have a high priest like that which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But we have a high priest that was in all points tempted like we, as we are, yet without sin. So let us therefore come boldly unto his throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy, kindness, and find grace to help in time of need. Job knew grief. Jesus experienced deeper grief. So when you cannot explain to anyone how you feel, he already knows. Amen. He already knows. Secondly, Job was weak. Didn't he say that? He says, am I like stones? 
Am I like brass? No, he wasn't. He was weak flesh. But our Jesus is a mighty rock. No one took his life from him, did they? He laid his own life down. You couldn't have killed Jesus Christ. Jesus was, Jesus is the mighty rock in a weary land. People could come to Jesus and cast all their care upon him. All day long, people came to him with their, with their uh, health problems, with their family problems, with their money problems, with everything. And he healed them all. And not once did he say, enough, I can't take it anymore. He's our mighty rock. You know, there, you cannot wear out God. Amen? That's a great New Testament truth. That's foreshadowed in Job. You will find yourself unable to meet other people's needs. That's when you say, you need to take it to Jesus now. <laughs> you need, don't ask anymore. I can't carry anymore. He'll carry the rest. Third, Jesus has given us a better hope, a better way to deal with sorrow. What did Job say? He says, I have no hope. I have no reason to keep going because I see no end. Go to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, ah, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. Look at chapter 6, verse 18, one page back maybe. That by two immutable, unchanging things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong, what's that word? What was Job wishing for? Consolation. What did he think would have to take place before he would be comforted? Death. And yet, we don't need death to comfort us. We have a strong consolation. We've fled to Jesus for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, unchanging, and, and, and which entereth all the way into, when it says the veil, where is, where is that going? The veil in the Holy of Holies in heaven. And I'm anchored there. I have a hope. How's my life going to end? Well, I don't know physically, but I know eternally. Jesus has given us a better hope. He's given us better promises. The resurrection itself says, I don't care if I die, I will live forever. You know, one of the great New Testament truth that Job sort of hints at, and that is, we have a Bible. And our Bible's perfect and finished. Job only had bits and pieces, and he believed it more than we believe the completed Bible. Make sure you decide, God, I just want to hold on to what I know I just want to believe what's in the Word of God. So I can say, God, God, the Bible says. <laughs> you can remind God of His promises, and you'll be all right. Conclusion. Do you have a critical spirit? Do you feel like you always need to point out flaws? Are you unable to ignore your own opinion when you've not actually listened to the other side? I bet more of us are prone to do that than we want to admit. Let me ask you this. Do you think anyone needs a friend like Eliphaz? No. <laughs> Does anyone ever need criticism? Yes. Just make sure it's constructive, cor corrective. Not bad mouth, not evil communication, but corrective, helpful. You ever felt like Job? 
You probably will one day. You see, all they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But it goes worse. It says, For unto you it is given on behalf of Christ not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. If you're doing the will of God, will everything go honky-dory? Will everything be great and grand? If you follow the will of God, it may cost you everything. Those are going to be days you're going to feel like Job, because Job was doing nothing wrong. He was doing everything that he should be doing. Just make sure along the way, whether a Job or whether you're in the place of an Eliphaz, make sure you bless and help everyone along the way. Let's stand. Let's bow in prayer. Let's pray. Forty-two chapters in this one book. Some of the deepest, darkest descriptions of the human heart and the feelings that are there. But also some of the worst things that can be said when somebody is hurting. And I have been guilty of not caring about my own words and how they can hurt others. Lord, would you help us to put a a guard over our mouth that we would be careful with how we act and react with other people because we have no idea what others are going through. And if there's one thing that Christians ought to be, it's help. Yes, that sometimes means speaking the truth in love. Sometimes it means correcting, reproving, instructing. Would we be careful enough so that we would never be like elephants? And that when we hear a cry like Job, we would realize that's probably what the people around us that are hurting are also crying out. And they just don't know how to say it. So thank you for putting it in the Bible. Thank you for giving us a glimpse of these struggles so that we don't repeat them. In Jesus' name, amen.